it's time for another episode of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes. Here's your host, Terrence McCauley. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. My guest today is Deborah Crombie. She is a New York Times bestselling author. Her latest novel, A Killing of Innocence, is published by William Morrow, and it is the 19th book in her long-running, acclaimed Duncan Kincaid and Gemma James series. She travels to England several times a year, only to return to her beloved Texas, where she lives with her husband, two German shepherds, and two cats. Deborah, thank you for being on the show with us today. Thank you for having me. Oh, this is wonderful. I know that a lot of people are looking forward to this, so let's get right to it. And why don't you tell us a little bit about A Killing of Innocence and your Kincaid James series? Uh, well, I have two um, major continuing characters in the series. Uh, Scott Leonard, Metropolitan Police Detective Superintendent Duncan Kincaid and uh, Detective Inspector Gemma James, who is also his wife, um, okay. that has been a, a development over the course of the series. They started out as professional partners and are now personal partners, and uh, so they no longer work on the same teams. And what happens in Killing of Innocence, Duncan is now stationed at, at um, in the borough of Camden at Hoburn Police Station. And he is put in charge of a murder in Russell Square, which is a really, really famous square in Bloomsbury, very historic Bloomsbury. And um, it's a young female doctor is stabbed by a passerby. And uh, Duncan calls in Gemma to consult on the case. She is now working um, it is part of a uh, knife crime data gathering unit. So that okay. was a of, of being able to pull them together on the case. And so that's where it takes off. And we go from there. Now, this is the 19th book in the series. When you started uh, on the first novel, did you envision it going this long? Did you envision the characters ending up like this? How, how did it all start? Uh, yes, I mean, yes and no. I knew I wanted to write a series because I loved detective series and I loved the, uh, the chance to see the characters develop and, um, and get to feel like they were, were friends and um, follow their lives. But I didn't know what was going to happen with Duncan and Gemma. I think mm -hmm. by the third book in the series, it was becoming pretty clear that the the, their partnership was a little bit more than professional. Um, and then they had to work a lot of things out. Um, wasn't an easy, you know, deciding to commit to being a couple was not an easy thing, particularly for Gemma, uh, mm -hmm. who was a single mother with a, a, a small son and uh, had a bad experience with the previous marriage and was really determined to hang on to her independence and didn't want to damage her career. But uh, 
things happen. Life went on and uh, they did it. end up getting married quite a few big books ago. Um, okay. And called uh, Where Memories Lie. And they now live in Notting Hill and they have a blended family with three kids. And, um, but all of that has just ha sort of happened organically. It's not something that I've had a long-term plan for this series. Which, by the way, uh, tomorrow, I think, which is also my granddaughter's seventh birthday, um, right. it will be the 30th anniversary of the publication of A Share in Death, the first book in the series. Wow, congratulations. <laughs> it's kind of shocking. It's like, I'm like, how did this even happen? Right, you look back on it all. And I mean, 30 years is a long time to keep a series going, especially in today's world. How how has the series evolved, not just about the protagonists, but how has it evolved from 30 years ago when you started writing it all the way to now? Do you, if you think about it, what were, are some of the market differences between 30 years ago writing a procedural and how the, this series has evolved to now? Oh, I, yeah, it's such a crazy business. Um, they're not and have never been big bang books, you know, mm -hmm. the, the sort of thing that you would have expected the first book in the series to be a bestseller or a movie property, or, um, I think it took, um, I was lucky enough to have an editor who saw the potential of the development of the series and really liked the concept and liked my writing. And so she bought three books. Um, and that was a thing. I was talking to somebody else about that the other day over an interview question about it, getting the call. You know, when you sold your first book, my yeah. aunt called me and it was about this time. I think it was actually February 2nd. Um, the year before the first book came out and she said we've had a three book offer from Scribner and wow. I was so silent that she thought I had fainted <laughs> and did you hear me I said but 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 what 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 yeah because <laughs> it was a very prestigious publisher and to be offered a, a three book contract was pretty amazing uh, of course, it didn't pay peanuts, but right. uh, but it was a foot in the door. Um, whether it's harder or easier these days, I I really don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the the big five have consolidated. There do seem to be. Uh, a lot of smaller imprints mm -hmm. that are popping up that are giving uh, first-time authors an opportunity. Right. So, I don't know. And as for the the appetite for uh, police procedurals, I think British TV has certainly been helpful in um, sort of building the popularity of the kind of books that I write. Right. Right, yeah, they definitely kept that genre going in in another market. For the uh, the plot of the books and the characters, when you started writing thirty years ago, a lot has happened. 
since then in terms of police procedurals, how they're written, what what audiences expect. You've got, I guess, for lack of a better term, the CSI effect. How do you envision the books now from where you started 30 years ago as to where they, what you have to include in the story right now? I've always tried to be, and actually, as you mentioned in the in the little bio, um, I was actually a biology major, and I did take some postgrad forensics courses because it was something I was really interested in. But I, yeah, I, I write fairly traditional police procedurals, and I generally try to avoid the CSI stuff as much as possible because I like my characters to work out the solution to the mystery by interviewing people and you know following lines of inquiry and, and making deductions. And if everything is solved by a DNA sample or uh, it just sort of takes the fun out of it, you know? And I'm always, there are lots of cases I've written about where there will be evidence that backs up the conclusion that the detectives come to um but i don't really want that to be the way a case is solved right right it, it sounds like you know enough about that world to know how it works but you don't want your story to hinge on that and that's a very unique take well i i also it's a it's a fine line you walk i think with these kind of books and you, you see it in procedural tv shows as well but nobody wants to know what the police really do mm -hmm. um, and it's it, it's unmanageable on the sort of stage that I'm working with and, you know in in a killing of innocence for instance Duncan's team that is working on first one murder and then two is about five or six people you probably have 10 times that many um in a real London murder case, a high profile murder case, but I can't write that. And we couldn't read it, you know? Right. <laughs> you can't keep up with that big a cast on the page. So, so you know, I know I'm pushing the bounds of, of reality in areas like that, but I do try to be accurate in the way they do things and the way they handle crime scenes. and as much as possible. Right, and that, of course. And that's why the series has lasted for 19 books and 30 years because- Too bad definitely... it's not 30. <laughs> <laughs> well, like the way you're going, it will be. 30 books in 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'll tell you, this seems to be a fantastic series. And I was wondering, since you're from Texas, you're from the United States, why did you decide to set the series in England, which I think is a great idea. I'm just wondering what was your motivation for making it a European I don't, I don't get nearly so. as much grief these days <laughs> as I did in the beginning <laughs> with the Texan writing British police procedurals. Right. Um, and obviously, if I do signings, live events, I don't like to read from my books because I may hear the I hear the, the voices correctly in my head but i don't want to inflict a fake british accent on people <laughs> right yeah uh it was what i loved i absolutely loved british crime novels my 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 two long time 
favorite things to read were British crime novels and fantasy. Um, okay. And I, I was an Anglophile from the time I was a teenager, if not sooner. And mm-hmm. when I was in my, I went to England for the first time with my parents when I graduated from college. They, they took me on a sort of, you know, Europe in seven days trip. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it was like I had come home. I don't know any other way to explain it. It was just the most bizarrely satisfying exciting i just felt like where i was supposed to be um and all i wanted to do was go back i um i moved out of my apartment i moved back in with my parents i worked for a year to save money after that first trip and then went back and with you know nothing but the, the the traditional backpack and a bus pass and traveled all over the uk by myself Wow. Yes, loved it. And then I came back to Texas and I met my Scottish ex husband, <laughs> <laughs> who was uh, who was in Dallas on a training course with uh, Texas Instruments. And he went back to Scotland and we decided to get married. And so I went to went to Scotland and lived in Edinburgh. We were actually we were married in Edinburgh and then we lived in Chester. Um, in England when he got transferred um, to Chester and um, but we eventually came back to the States it was hard this was this was early 80s in Thatcher Britain and it was not a good economic climate Mm -hmm. and I couldn't get a work permit um, because you know it was tough and they weren't giving out permits to foreigners even if you were married to a Brit And um, so we did, we did end up coming back to the States, but I was so homesick for Britain. And uh, we had been on a, and and, you know, we went every year if we could. And uh, for several weeks on holiday, as Mm -hmm. we say in the UK, we don't say on vacation, we say on holiday. And um, I had seen a timeshare on a trip to Yorkshire. And uh, it was a Georgian house and the Yorkshire Moors had been converted to uh, to a timeshare. And I had, can we stop and go in and look at this place? It just looks interesting. And I, you know, I got the brochure and and I thought, wouldn't that be a great place to set a mystery? Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought about it and I thought about it and I went home and I came up with my detective and I have to say that Duncan Duncan was first born. Sort <laughs> <laughs> of appeared in my head, and I heard his voice. I, you know, I, I, I mean, his internal voice, and I right. knew his thought, and I knew his background. And he's from a little market town in uh, Cheshire, which is not very far from where we lived when we okay. were in Chester. And um, and I wanted a a Scotland Yard detective who was senior enough to be sent to investigate cases in other places in case I wanted to take my detective out of London and he gave you options yeah yeah he is actually on holiday in that first book and then I thought well he's going to need a a partner and I think it would be fun if his partner was female and you know really different 
different background, different personality, and Gemma sort of came out of that. And I was interested in writing about a female detective character who was not this sort of tough, no ties, no responsibilities that mm -hmm. we were seeing in a lot of women in crime fiction. Right. In, in those days, do you? you I know, remember, yeah. Where they sort of operated like men, you know, they didn't have kids, they didn't have, maybe they had a pet. Um, but so I wanted to write a, a female detective who was dealing with the kind of things that I was dealing with, had dealt with trying to juggle job and family responsibilities and child. And um, so Gemma, Gemma came out of that and her background is really different from Duncan. She was a working, working class family from North London. Mm -hmm. um, she's younger than he is. And, um, but, and we sort of went from there. I came home and started writing and everybody made fun of me. I know that, that that can be the worst part, yeah. can it? When you're starting to hatch an idea. Yeah, yeah. Sure, you're going to write a book. Yeah, I always tell people be careful who you tell that you're writing until it's done because sometimes people can accidentally or intentionally take the wind out of your sails. And I'm glad you persisted and didn't let their uh, the naysayers win. Well, at one point, my. Uh my husband my ex-husband said well so what are you going to do when you don't sell this one this book and i said i'm going to write another one <laughs> <laughs> that is the kind of mindset you need to be a writer absolutely even if you don't sell one no, that was, is the kind of mindset you need yeah it was the most fun thing i'd ever done i just absolutely loved it there's this magic that happens when you sit down and at the keyboard or journal or whatever and the and the characters start coming to life it's just there's nothing else like it i mean i i wish it was on tap and it happened instantly every time i sat down at the computer <laughs> but, but when it does happen it's just the best thing ever yeah it certainly is and it's the, the kind of thing that unless it, you experience it it's very tough to describe it sounds crazy to people who might be yeah. lovers but they haven't written and it's you're right it, it just these things come to you and they say where do you get your ideas and I know Reed Farrell Coleman said oh there's a guy in Montauk I get them from at the corner but, uh, <laughs> but you know it's, it's just <laughs> right right yeah and it's just it's just that this stuff comes to you and I think it's it, it's in the, the way our minds work as writers that um, you take in all of this information and then somehow on its own, your mind kind of assembles it to where it needs to be. I always say it's sort of like making soup, you know, <laughs> you throw one thing in the pot and then another one and, and then another one. And it's very seldom, oh, you know, one thing. And that's the whole idea for the book. And especially if you write, like I do multiple viewpoint and some multiple storylines, sometimes multiple timeline books. Mm -hmm. uh, it's more a case of sort of weaving all the different pieces together and seeing if you can make something that makes sense out of right. all these crazy ideas. Right. Yeah, no, it definitely is. It, it, it's, it's about, and also having the confidence in your ability to do that, 
and to, to change as you go through with manuscript because manuscript also can take a life on its own even when you have a character that's been around for 19 books in 30 years, can it? Oh my gosh, I cut a hundred pages from this book. Wow, that's a lot. <laughs> that wow. is that is the the most I have ever ever cut. Uh, it was kind wow. of fun actually because I was on a really because this book was so late, um, and I was on a really tight deadline. And I have a wonderful editor. Um, who makes me a much better writer mm -hmm. and uh, and she still edits on paper okay and yeah so I get these scrawls in the margins <laughs> of my manuscript that say things like I don't think we need this here do you this <laughs> <laughs> Right. Yeah, I can imagine that. And then you still get that all these years later, right? But uh, yeah, yeah. And it's great. I mean, I wouldn't have it any other way. I think you, uh, I, I think you can tell when sometimes writers get to the point where they don't think they either, they don't think they need to be edited anymore or their editors don't yeah and i think everybody can use editing mm -hmm. yeah it always feedback always makes a, a writer's process better and i i know for me i learned something that from editing one book that i carry forward into the next books and that's uh it's important i know yeah what you said is true sometimes a writer can get stale or they can even let a little bit of pride get in the way and then they don't want to your criticism, even if it's constructive. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what was it like for you when you, which book was your first one that was a New York Times bestseller? Uh, the Sound of Broken Glass, I think was the first one that broke the top 10, okay. which what, you know, the, the metric is that the the publisher wants to see that before they they start splashing New York Times bestseller on your dust jackets. Right, right, exactly right. And do you remember which book in the series that one was? Oh, the Sound of Broken Glass is. I got to count. <laughs> I got to count back here. It's nineteen. Uh, let's see, Bitter Feast is 18, Garden of Lamentations is 17, To Dwell in Darkness is 16, so 15. So you were 15 books in, and then it becomes a New York Times bestseller. How was that? How was that feeling when you got the word that you would finally cross that, cross that threshold? That was a long slog, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, it's just, I was in a hotel room on book tour. Uh, okay. Yeah, and my uh, my editor sent me champagne and I still, I still carry around the champagne cork in my, uh, my overnight bag. 
like my wow bag. <laughs> it was that's great yeah it's just over the moon just the best feeling in the world and um, i can imagine that because it was you know you're 15 books in this one hits and the reason why i asked that question is because a lot of people say oh well, if the first one in this planned series isn't a hit i'm just going to walk away from it and you're a testament to that not being necessarily the case right yeah well they yeah they'd always have always been well reviewed um mm -hmm. first book was a uh, best novel let's see agatha best novel nominee um uh mccavity best novel nominee actually won the mccavity i think that year um and, you know, the books have been nominated and well-reviewed. Uh, the fifth book, Dreaming of the Bone, was a New York Times notable book. And right. it was an Edgar nominee. And so there's been lots of, lots of accolades over the years and, and nice enough sales. I mean, mm -hmm. everybody wants to always be in the, the, the top of the, the bestseller list. But sure. And I've had really good publishers. Um, right. right. Yeah. I mean, and that's important for people to realize that not every success is is an overnight one. Not every uh, not every incredible series is going to be a hit right off the bat. Even though yours got a lot of acclaim early on, you have to find validation where you can. And sometimes you have to just be the only one who believes in your story to persist with it, don't you? I just wanted to keep writing. Yeah, mm -hmm. I wanted to keep writing my characters, and um, I'm just thrilled that readers love them enough that they still have a have a place in the market. They certainly do. They certainly do. Now, what is next for these characters? Do they? age along and they age 30 years since you started writing oh them, gosh no and that, no. that's yeah that's an interesting uh interesting question and it was something that i thought about really early on i'm going to be teaching a, a virtual master class in march um for the um upper hudson sisters in crime chapter um at a, a virtual conference called murderous march but I'm going, to be, I'm going to be teaching a masterclass on how to write a series, keep a series going. Right. Um, but I thought about that and I thought if you age your characters in real time, you end up like Ian Rankin did with having to retire your detective right. uh, and, and maybe bring him back and... Uh, and I, I didn't want to do that. And I didn't want to do this sort of Sue Grafton thing where you keep your detective, uh, you know, in one fairly small time period because she mm -hmm. kept Kinsey uh, in the 80s. And uh, so I sort of I copied P.D. James. I was she was a big influence on me. I met her several times and uh, and I loved her books and and her dog leash novels sort of float in time. I call it a right. floating timeline. I don't know what other people call it, but that's what I call it, which is every book is contemporary. Mm -hmm. um, 
but it the books kind of move in an alternate universe you know about five almost six years have passed in book time in my series um when it's been 30 years since the publication of the first book right so but so there has to be a little bit of suspension of disbelief mm -hmm. but it seems Which is what yeah it works and it's because people tend to want to read to escape reality they're not that you, we all have troubles of our own, aches and pains of our own. We don't necessarily want to open up a book and find one of our favorite characters experiencing the same thing, do we? No, and you know, and now I'm really trying to slow the slow the 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 time progress down in the books because I don't want the kids growing up. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, and it seems to be uh, it seems to be a formula that's working for you. Um, have you ever been tempted to delve into any other genres or you're perfectly happy in the one that you're in right now? I'm, I, I read a lot of other stuff. I'm a big urban fantasy fan. I like women's fiction. I really like historical novels and historical uh, mysteries and, but nothing has ever given me that that big spark or that brilliant idea where I just have to write this. I, I think part of it is that my books have covered a lot of territory. Right. Um, I've set them in different places. Uh, quite a few of the books have multiple timelines where, you know, mm -hmm. I've come back and, and they've had a historical timeline that um, feeds into the contemporary story. And also I have a really big cast now. Mm -hmm. Right. And I bring in new characters in every book. And, you know, and sometimes the, the, my problem now is that I can't get everybody that I want to write about in one book. Right. Because, yeah. There's too many. There's too many characters. And I, you know, I since. Gosh, going back as far as what, where memories lie farther than that I basically have four main characters because right. when Duncan and Gemma decided that they were going to be in a relationship and they moved in together I thought well I can't have them working together on the same team anymore because of all those complications I've since found out that in the I have read this uh, in the British police that if two officers are of the same rank, that they can work on the same team. Uh, okay. But I'm not sure how how practical that is in in real life. Um, right. So I split them up and gave them both new partners, and uh, which is. Duncan's is Sergeant Doug Cullen and Melody's is uh, Gemma's is Sergeant Melody Talbot and um, and I really really like these characters and uh, and there's some new characters or new-ish characters that uh, that have a, a good storyline in uh, A Killing of Innocence that we'll see more of. Excellent, um, because, and also too, by splitting them up, you also gave yourself a lot more plot options for future work. Absolutely. And I, and, you know, I try to kind of switch back and forth where one book 
Duncan's case has the most focus and then another book, Gemma's case has the most focus or actually it was really fun in the book before this, A Bitter Feast, because they are as a family on holiday uh, in the Cotswolds and something happens, they get involved in a case. And so Duncan, Gemma, Doug and Melody all get to work on the same case. Oh, okay. Even though they're not, they are not officially on the case, but so it was sort of a busman's, busman's holiday book, but it, that was a lot of fun to write. Yeah, and I would imagine too, the audience tends to latch on to what we think of as secondary characters as writers, and then you have to find ways to include them in uh, future works. Yeah. So yeah they all have their own stories they want to tell. Right, so you have to give them page time as well. Yeah. Again, they're all, just because they're in our mind doesn't mean we always control them. Yeah. Now, what is next for you with this series? Uh, can you share anything about where we're going from here, what the net future works might be? Uh, well, I think the next book, I, I think, I don't want to do too many spoilers here. Um, I think Gemma is going to be making some job changes in the next book and the, the next the next case is going to tilt towards Gemma. Mm -hmm. But we have to find a way for Duncan to be involved as well. Um, and I'm going to keep them in London. Now it's okay. Out of London every few books but uh but uh West London um I think some of it has to do with Little Venice which is an area that I didn't know much about uh, and, okay. and uh but I got to go and do some exploring on this last trip you know not going to England for three years was just so tough I can imagine. And I, can uh, imagine. I couldn't do that feet on the ground research. And, you know, which is one of the reasons that there's such a big gap between books, because I had just started the research for A Killing of Innocence. And mm -hmm. when I was there in October, November 2019, and had planned to go back in the spring, and, you know, we all know what happened. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so much of this book was written using Google Street View. <laughs> you too huh i do the same thing <laughs> and and it, well you know what was really weird is by the time i was reading uh a copy edit and page proof uh, page proofs i would read parts and there were places where i couldn't remember if i had actually been there or if that was just on, on google <laughs> It's funny, isn't it? I mean, I, I set a novel of mine, uh, one of my thriller books in London, and I had, I had never been there. And I was only there this uh, past November. And while I was there, I remembered, I went to a place that was uh, right near uh, Westminster Abbey. And I stood on the corner where the scene took place. And it felt like I had been there before, but I had only seen it through Google Maps. And it was, it's just, we talked about this before we hit record. It's amazing how familiar London can feel to people yeah. who've never been there before. Yeah, well, I did exactly the same thing. You know, um, Scotland, Scotland Yard moved 
since I was there in 2019. They moved okay. the, the building at um, Caxton and Victoria that they've been in for years to the uh, refurbished Cecil Green building on the Thames Embankment. And mm -hmm. so I had written scenes where both Gemma and Melody are in the, the new Scotland Yard headquarters on the Thames Embankment, but I had not actually been there. And that was a really strange feeling to go and, and look at the new building and look at what their view was that I had looked at on Google Street View. <laughs> I'll tell you, technology, technology has been wonderful. Yes, yes, it has. You know, yes, it has. It helps you guys. I was doing all my research with with paper maps and books that I brought <laughs> in the UK. Um, suitcases, suitcases full of books that I would bring back from the UK because I couldn't just order them. Um, right. Right. And it definitely was, there was no Kindle back then. So, uh, you know, we couldn't have ebooks and yeah. uh, save yeah. floor and shelf space because of those. Um, yeah, no, it, it's fascinating when you're, when you write about a place you've never been and then you go there. It's wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, good for it's you. Amazing. Yeah, I was really, uh, yeah, I was blown away by the place and I definitely plan on going back and exploring not only more of the city, but areas out there outside of it, like uh, York, I'd love to go to Bath and Scotland. I'd love to uh, visit up there as well. And I'd like to take the train to Paris to at least see the Eiffel Tower. So oh, that's uh, fun. yeah, I've done the, done the, uh, the, the channel. Um, yeah, that's uh, really, but do, if you do that, pay the extra bucks and go first class. Yes, that's what I heard. I heard that. Yeah, I heard there was a market difference between yeah. Uh, the other class is the first class. Yeah, I, I'm going to be saving my pennies and hopefully sell a few extra books to be able to pay for that one. But I I'd really like to set another book in Scotland. I, you know, I set one book in Scotland, but it was, you know, Duncan and Gemma don't have any jurisdiction there. Uh, right. They wouldn't be called in to a case. So that was kind of a stretch. But, mm -hmm. um, oh, that book was so much fun because I, my research was um going to distilleries in space <laughs> that's probably the most fun research i have ever done for a book learned all about whiskey and just had a great time and i am now a member of the scotch malt whiskey society and i go to the london club when i'm there that's really oh fun. wow yeah <laughs> are you a, that's amazing are you a scotch drinker I'm not, but uh, I've, uh, as you've seen while we've been interviewing, I, I enjoy a cigar. So, uh, you know, th those two worlds are closely intermingled. And, um, you know, I just imagine having enjoying a nice scotch and a nice cigar at a proper London club. I would imagine that's quite a thrill. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. It's actually just kind of a nice bolt hole to have some place in central London, St. Hatton Gardens, where you can just go and, you know, wash your hands and use the loo and have a, a tea or uh, if you're not drinking scotch and right the paper or take notes or whatever it's it's a nice I've never been to the Edinburgh club but anyway I've been feeling very homesick for Scotland the last couple of years but I haven't figured out how to manage to get my characters 
back there. And I'm always in writing about Edinburgh, even though I've lived there, I'm always a little bit hesitant to, you know, tread on Ian Rankin territory. Right, exactly. Yeah, because he kind of owns that that whole part of the, the area, doesn't he? Yeah. With his work. Uh, one, since you mentioned that you uh, love British mysteries, is there any series on BritBox or one of those services or Masterpiece Theater that you uh, that you currently enjoy? That, that's not a classic, but that uh, you're watching now that you'd recommend to people. Um. Oh, the. Uh... The Anthony Horowitz uh, Magpie. I'm, I'm watching Magpie Murders. I think I must be the only person in you know my circle of mystery writers that hasn't seen the whole thing. But, okay. Yeah, but I, I just hadn't gotten to it, and but I've seen the first couple of episodes, and it's really it's really good. That's um, the same person who did Foil's War, right? I believe. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was excellent too. And um, one of my favorite things that I saw last year on Gripbox was The Responder, which is really, really gritty and more hard-boiled. Martin Freeman as um, a patrol cop in Liverpool. Okay. But if you I like, saw that advertised. Yeah. Fabulous, fabulous performance by Martin Freeman. And uh, just really a gripping gripping series all right well i'm definitely going to put that one on my list uh, did you ever see the original house of cards by the way in uh from london yeah yeah that was excellent that was that's yeah. way back in the late 80s early 90s but that one it's not a mystery but it's it's a thriller and it's a it, that series has always been oh they favorite. know they know how to do nasty politics <laughs> <laughs> yes they do and they have great you know ian richardson is in this one one of his last roles and he was just absolutely incredible um anyway but how can people uh follow you follow everything that's happening with you social media websites stuff like that uh i do a lot on my author facebook page okay um Deborah Crombie. Deborah, is it Deborah Dot Crombie? I never look at my own. <laughs> anyway, it's easy right. to find. <laughs> you just go on Facebook and search for author Deborah Crombie. There I am. Um, yeah, there it comes up. Yeah, and I um I post on Instagram. I like Instagram. I, Instagram is sort of play um for me. Fun. Mm -hmm. Um I'm on Twitter, but I don't post a lot or tweet a right. lot or whatever it is that you do. And whatever the nomenclature is. Yeah, my uh, my website is uh, DebraCrombie.com. So that's easy. All right. Fantastic. And there, that's where people can find out about all your events and upcoming books and things like that. Yeah, right? which reminds me, I haven't updated the events on my web page. I have got to do that. <laughs> You see, we're here to help. We're here to. Uh, yeah, I've been writing blog posts for all these different, uh, you know, upcoming publications and doing interviews and stuff like that. So I haven't updated my webpage. Must do. I'm off to Phoenix uh, tomorrow. Okay. Oh. Um, Fantastic. Yeah, what's going on out in Phoenix? Is the I'll be um, signing at the Poison Pen on Saturday the 4th mm -hmm. uh, and 
they will have signed books for sale. Um, so, uh, and then next week on the 9th, I'm signing at Murder by the Book in Houston. Oh, okay. We'll have signed books for sale. Fantastic. Well, I thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I know the audience is going to have enjoyed this and learned a lot from hearing you, and uh, I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. It was great fun. Of course, of course. And we hope you'll be back when we hear more about the uh, 20th book in the series. I think that was going to be perfect. It sooner than three years. <laughs> I'm sure it will be. I'm sure it will be. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been another edition of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. We're honored once again to be sponsored by BestThrillerBooks.com, your best source for reviews and giveaways for thrillers that need to be on your to-be-read file. From first-time authors to perennial bestsellers, BTB covers thrillers better than anyone else. So if you're looking for your next big thrill, be sure to visit them at bestthrillerbooks.com. Thank you for listening. See you next time, everybody. You have been listening to Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes with host Terence McCauley on Authors on the Air Global Radio Network.